Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful to be in the house of the Lord today. The, the scripture passage we're going to read is taken from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's chapter 3, starting at verse 26 and going to chapter 4, verse 7. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of God. I feel the same way as Neil. Such a blessing uh, to be with you in God's house today. We began last week, and we're in a series talking about good news. And I was saying to you how um, that when it comes to good news, who doesn't like receiving good news? And whenever you do, you do two things, right? You celebrate, whatever your happy dance is, fist pump, whatever it is that you like to do. And then you tell someone you love. This is our instinctive response to good news. We receive it, we celebrate it, and then we start texting or calling or whoever, grabbing the person next to us that we love and say, isn't this amazing? We were talking about the fact that the, what the Christian church and the early Christians from the very beginning of time, from 2,000 years ago, the beginning of the, the, the start of the church, the message they proclaimed they called good news. It's actually the, the translation of the word gospel which is um, the words that are used to describe these biographies of a person named Jesus. But we sort of were honest about the fact that when it comes to the good news that Christians proclaim and that the church apparently are carriers of the, of the messenger, message of good news, that it doesn't seem to be good enough for most people. That the good news doesn't seem to be good enough to actually change and transform many, many people who say, oh yeah, I believe in the good news. Likewise, it doesn't seem to be good enough to keep people in church because by every survey we've seen, there's a mass exodus from churches uh, all over North America. Churches are shrinking. One denomination I heard the other day is going from 2,000 churches to 1,000 churches in the next two years here in Canada. And it doesn't seem to be good enough to compel those who otherwise would say, no, I got way better things to do with my time than come to church or read the Bible or talk to people about faith. We said, well, what's wrong with that? Like, there's something wrong with the good news, is there? And we began last week by saying, the problem is the way we've described what the good news is. 
We've made it too thin and too small. And we've said some version of it is like this, that you're a sinner, um, which is bad news, but good news, Jesus has come to save you. And if you believe in him and you pray a prayer, he will rescue you from hell, more bad news, and take you to heaven one day. We said, if that's the version of the good news that we heard or that we are proclaiming, or maybe even some of you came to faith with a, a message or a version of that message, some way like that, the problem is if we're just waiting around with our ticket to heaven, biding our time, it actually does nothing to change our lives here on earth. It does nothing to actually transform us and say, God has actually come to give us new lives. Not only that, it's a bit awkward to explain to other people because we just kind of have to try to convince them they're sinners and we can barely convince ourselves that we're sinners, never mind somebody else. And when we begin that way, people say, yeah, that's really why I don't want anything to do with religion or the church or whatever. We said, actually, the good news is not sort of a statement of propositional truth. The good news, if we could put it into one word, it's Jesus. That's why all the Gospels that were written, the, the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, were the good news of Jesus Christ. And they weren't these small little pamphlets with a couple of statements. They wrote chapters and chapters. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, that reading plan is killing me. There's so many chapters in a day. These are books. These are life chronicles. They're biographies of his birth and his life and his teachings and his relationship with people and how he interacted and how, what he thought about religion and what he thought about God and what he thought about love and what he thought about forgiveness and then his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Four different, robust, beautiful accounts of the good news of Jesus. We said what we were going to do over these six weeks is actually try to put it in 30 words or so, so that you and I can actually have an encounter and an experience with what the good news was meant to do, which is produce joy in us. That we could, in a, in a sense, which is what we should do, right, as we gather as a church all the time, is celebrate the good news. And then that somehow you'd have words to be able to explain to someone in your life, someone that you love, to say, I have to share this with you. And we're uh, actually also tracking on this journey with another church, friends of ours from an Alliance church in Bolton. So shout out to you guys. Maybe we could just say hello. Can you guys say hi? One, two, three. Yes, we love you. Glad you're with us on this journey. And over these next six weeks, and if you're in a home group, you're getting a chance to kind of chew through this together and talk about it. If you have that reading plan, if you didn't get it last week, there's one online that you can grab on the website that will just allow you to track through the Gospels as we talk about it together every Sunday. We began last week with the good news that Jesus is what? God with us. That was really lame. Jesus is? Yes. Okay. Some of you were here last week. Mentally and physically. Okay. That sort of, we translate to talk about, these, this doesn't just mean that God is sort of with us as Jesus became one of us, but it also means something so significant that we really needed to know about. And I had lots of conversation with people about this this week because they said, man, that was really powerful. That it means that God is for us, right? Not against us. That God is for us. And, and that necessarily brings up this idea of love. Because we kind of want to know, if there is a God, does he love us? We, we hope he does. We, we think he probably should, but we doubt whether he does. We're not quite sure, which is a problem. And, and it's actually a problem that many of us have, whether you've been in church a long time or never, or this is your first day. 
I remember traveling in a, in a city, uh, country in Asia, and I was visiting a friend of mine in the city. He picked me up uh, at the airport, and we drove, and we got into the city, and we began to walk. It's a beautiful city. And, and as we were walking, all over the ground were these little um, paper trays of beautiful flowers, all different colors. And, and, and I actually had to keep from stepping on them because they were everywhere. And he kept saying, oh, don't step, don't step. I said, what are those? He said, well, those are offerings to the gods. And he pointed sort of along the wall uh, that was following the sidewalk and sort of the, the posts of every driveway. And I looked down and, and into like every post of every house was carved these image of these gods. And their faces were like this. Ah, it was, they were all angry. He said, these are the offerings to appease the gods so they don't break out in anger against us. And we would think, man, that's kind of crazy. But that's how, that's how a lot of us feel or wonder. We're not sure. You know, God, we think God might be angry, at least he's temperamental. Or, or at best, he's just disappointed with us. You know, he kind of has this look of like, seriously? You know, that, that's sometimes if we said, oh, close your eyes and picture. What is God's face towards you right now? Rarely would any of us say, oh, joy, delight. We think skepticism, anger, sort of temperamental displeasure which is a problem because you and I as creatures, as human beings, are hardwired for love. We want love more than anything else. Love makes the world go round. The, the subject of virtually every song on the radio, love, sex, relationships in some shape or form, right? I mean, people say they love their cars, but no one creates a whole album full of songs about cars. I mean, some people do. No one buys it. People say they love food. Okay, but nobody, uh, you know, that was Eat It, I guess, was, what, was the song, right, about food. But that's about it. People say, well, yeah, I love my job. I love my work. <laughs> nobody writes beautiful songs about their job, and everyone cranks them up in their car and sings them at the top of their lungs. Right? It's love in relationships that makes the world go round, that makes the heart sing, that makes the poets write and the bard sort of play. So... We have a problem because if we long for love and we're not sure whether God is a God of love, we're not sure whether we want to be close to him, right? Should, should we, would we move towards a God that we're not sure actually loves us? And since we crave love and we need that most, there is this barrier between us and God. And so it might be, it might be easier to believe that God um, is the creator, like we think, okay, and, and lots of sort of religions have this idea, okay, God up there who sort of set the world in motion. And we could say, okay, yeah, that's what God does, because he's, he's God, he's the only one who could do that, create the world, sort of, he's there. Uh, others might, might have, you know, be uh, able to conceive of a God who's sort of sovereignly in control, like he's the sovereign ruler. And you might even say, well, you know, he's, he's a benevolent dictator, like he, he does good for the people of earth. But love, Love is much more than that. Love is personal. Like you might say, the Prime Minister of Canada does good for the people of Canada. But to say, oh, the Prime Minister of Canada loves me. Now, some of you might say that, and that's okay. That's strange, just so you know. <clears throat> right? Why? We don't say that. Why? Because that's so personal. That would mean he knows me. That would mean he likes me. That would mean he's interested in me. That would mean his face is turned towards me. That would mean that he might even be using his power and influence sort of in my favor because he loves me. That would mean I'm an important person to him. If he loves me, I could walk into his office 
and security might come towards me and he'd say, guys, sit down, it's okay. That's my friend. I love them. <laughs> it's so strange to think about it, yet we, we are comfortable in one sense with God and all these other categories of sovereign ruler and creator, but to say that he loves us and yet we are hardwired for love. We look for it in every other relationship that we have. But if we're not sure God loves us, we have a problem, which is why the good news that you and I celebrate and proclaim has to say this, <laughs> that Jesus came to show us that God is love. Amen. That's good news. You know the sign they hold up at baseball games, John 3.16? They used to hold it. We should bring that back. That John 3.16, right? You know that, some of you know that. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. His son. Jesus is the son who shows us God's love. That's the good news. Jesus is the son who shows us God's love. How do we know that God loves us? Could you, if, if you just sort of flip through the newspapers today, could you be convinced that God loves us? Would you see that? Would you be able to tell that God loves us from the newspapers? Probably not. Could you know that God loves us by just being out in nature? Some people are like, you know, I don't like going to church. I just like hanging out in nature and mountaintop. That's my spiritual place. And that's good. And you could conclude a bunch of things about God by hanging out in nature that he's an artist, that he's powerful. But you couldn't conclude that he loves and that he loves you. Could you conclude that God loves you by just looking at the circumstances of your life? Maybe some days, it's like the Polaroid, right? If I took it on Sunday, it looked really good. Another day, wow, I'm not sure. If that's all we have to go on, we wouldn't be able to know that God is love. The reason we know that God loves us is because he sent his son. And when we see Jesus, we understand, oh yeah, God loves me. We see it in Jesus' life. We see the way he treated people. How loving he was. How you know, focused he was on individuals. He wasn't just someone who preached to the masses. But when he did, he said, God is for you, not against you. God's the kind of God that even if you totally burned away half of his inheritance, left home, wasted it, and you came home, he would be the one running to meet you. That's what God is like. That's how he taught. But then how he acted and responded towards so many people who the religious people have said, you don't belong, God doesn't love you until you get clean, until you get healed, until you fix your life, until you, you know, but, you, but you've had divorces and you've had a mess and you've cheated on this person and you've cheated on taxes and you've, you're a sinner. <laughs> Jesus was always going towards those people saying, God has forgiven you. God loves you. God knows you. Friends, you might want to believe that God is love, but the only way you can know it for sure is through Jesus because he sent his son to answer the question once and for all, are you unsure? Look at me. <laughs> so many times Jesus said that, look at me, right? He looked at them, he looked in the eyes of people. And this is so important to us to know 
But you might say, okay, and, and if you've grown up in the church, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I know, God loves me. I want to just camp out here for a moment because the great danger with believing that God loves us is that it can be like this love that, okay, like my girlfriend loves me or, uh, you know, my mom loves me or my kids love me or my spouse loves me or my employer loves me because I work all the time, which case maybe other people don't love me as much. But, you know, I have love. Oh, and God loves me too? This is like a bonus, right? Because it can't be bad to have God in your corner, right? Like, God loves you. Oh, good. I kind of hoped he would. If that's all we think the love of God is, it won't be enough for us. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, it isn't enough for us. You know how we know? Because we're desperate for someone else to love us too. If, if being of utmost importance to the one of utmost importance was actually enough for us, if we really understood it, why are we devastated then when we are rejected by others? Why does lesser love seem to mean so much more to us than the love of God? That when I think, well, you know, my spouse doesn't say I love you. And they're living with me, but I'm not, I'm not sure that they're for me and turned towards me. That I'm devastated inside. Or maybe an adult child has left home or a teenage child at home has just sort of seemed to cut me off. And I can't get through to them. And I don't know if they love me. And I don't know if they know that I love them. And I'm dying inside. Or I can't seem to turn the head of that person that I really want to notice me. And without that love, I don't know if I can live. The love of God, in a sense, doesn't seem to be enough for us because we are desperate for every other kind of love. And if we don't have it, we feel like we're not even alive. And so I want to spend some time here saying, okay, could we, and I've been praying for you and for me, God, could we know this love that actually changes our lives, that we would really know just how good it is that Jesus is the Son who shows us God's love. It's interesting, right? Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God to the point that it was what got him killed. Like the, the term was so loaded and the way that he was talking about his relationship with God was so offensive to the religious people that they accused him of blasphemy, which is when you speak... Um, you know, inappropriate words about God. They were saying, you are claiming some kind of knowledge and intimacy with God in heaven that no human being should have. You are a blasphemer. And isn't it interesting the name that Jesus uses for God over and over and over again? Not Elohim, which was sort of the original, like the translation of God when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and Moses wrote those books. He used the word Elohim. Or Elohim Jehovah, which is this, you know, sort of powerful personal name of God. Or the Lord Almighty. <laughs> what did Jesus call God all the time? My Father. My Father. And the translation was, even he said, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, Father in heaven. The word was Abba, which is like Daddy. It's an intimacy of relationship with God, that Jesus as the Son called God his Father. And then when he was talking about God, my Father, my Father, and he said, and your Father in heaven. He was telling us something about the love of God for us that was far more than, bonus, God's in my, my corner. He's going to do some good things for me because he loves me. No, no, this is a love of a different kind. A few years later, as the Apostle Paul is writing 
one of his many letters to these new churches. And he's trying to help them understand what does it mean that God has loved you as a father and that Jesus is the son. He writes this in the book of Galatians, and uh, Neil read it for you this morning. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit confusing because he's actually referencing some things that would be known from a Greco-Roman household. So there's some context there, which we're going to get into, but let me read it for you again, because this is one of the most profound statements about the good news that you and I maybe have never heard about it in this sense, but changes our lives. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You're all children of God. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or his offspring and heirs according to the promise. We'll get into that in a second. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Paul uses two ideas to describe to us who we were before Jesus came. We were, in a sense, orphans, and we were slaves. He said, you've received adoption which means we were orphans. And he says, you are no longer slaves, which means we were slaves. An orphan has to make their own way, has to find love themselves because they're not given it at birth, even though every human being comes into the world kicking and screaming and longing for love, touch, affection, nurture, care, adoration, love. An orphan has not any of those things. And so an orphan has to find their way. They, in a sense, live without love. They live without the intimacy of family. And a slave, a slave has to earn their keep and work hard enough to keep their place. A slave is in the household, but they're not home. A slave is with the family, but they're not part of a family. In a Greco-Roman context, you would have a slave or two if you had some money. They were probably foreigners. They were probably from people or lands that you conquered. And then the, the younger people, able-bodied people, would be sort of auctioned off in a market. And the wealthier Greco-Roman households would buy slaves. And they would work. And as long as they worked, they could keep, they'd have food, and they'd have a, a roof over their heads. But if it weren't good enough, they didn't perform well enough, or they failed in their task, they could be beaten or just sent out and sent away. He said, you know what, we'll get another one. And Paul is saying to us, before Jesus came, in a sense, you were on your own, 
like an orphan trying to find home, trying to find love, but not having it yourself. Or you were like a slave having to live. It says, you know, under the, um, kind of weird, it's like the superhero reference under, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. It's like, what is that? Well, as best as commentators can understand, it's this description of what well, you hear the word law. It's this idea of the way things were. It's a picture of saying you basically had to make sure you lived up to the, the way things are. And if you weren't, you didn't cut it. You were rejected. You were out. That's why you were a slave to those things. He says, but when Jesus came, something changed. The love of God actually changed your identity. You are a new person. We have been rescued by Jesus from this life of having to try to find love ourselves and to get someone to say the words or to turn our heads or whatever it is, you know, in, in every, any dating relationship, right? Like, what are you longing to hear? Those three words. Not four words, I care about you. Not five words, it's not you, it's me, right? I love you. And Paul says we are desperate in a sense for that God has changed our identity. No longer do we have to grasp and reach for love. And we are rescued. We're no longer slaves. No longer do we have to live up to the standards and make sure we perform in every kind of way. Otherwise, we're going to lose love. We are rescued in a sense from the way every other relationship works in life. What have you done for me lately? Are you good enough? Are you beautiful enough? Are you capable enough? Are you worthy enough? The relentless need to keep our place in life, whether it's in a job or a marriage or in a family, whether it's the approval of parents or the approval of children or the approval of a spouse, that we are good enough in a sense. This is a slave's life. I have to make sure I'm still doing good and being good and looking good because if not, I will lose my place and I will lose love. Paul says, that's who you were. But in Jesus, you are a child of God. When a child has its place in the home, a child can never lose its place in the home. Because its very identity as a son or a daughter is of the father, the head of the household, the one who says, you're mine. And the scriptures say that the good news of Jesus Christ is that our very identity has changed. The good news, friends, is that Jesus has rescued us from having to try to find and keep and earn love. In a Greco-Roman household, something amazing could happen in the life of a slave. If the heads of the household, if the mother and father decided, you know what? We actually love this slave. We want to make them a son. They could do that. They could actually move and change the status of the slave to make them a son. And if they were a son, then they became an heir. See, a slave would work, and the reward of their work was that they would get to stay in the house, they would get some food, they would get a roof over their heads. But that's all. 
A child who worked in the home was working because everything in the home was theirs. So if they worked on the farm or they worked in the family business or whatever it was, it was their money they were looking after. They were going to get it all. The identity of moving from a slave to a son was not just acceptance, but inheritance. Everything that the father and mother had was going to be that child. And, and Paul says, this is what has happened to you. You have not only been rescued from this life of having to try to find love and keep love and make sure you're good enough and do good enough and look good enough, but you are now a child. Your place is secure. The love the father has for you is infinite and will never be removed. And everything that the father has is yours. The scriptures actually say that we are co-heirs with Christ because Jesus is the oldest brother in this home and that we get everything that Jesus gets. Well, what did Jesus get? the unwavering approval of God. There's, there's two times in, in the life of Jesus where, in a sense, God stopped the world, opened heaven, and thundered out this voice. That's my boy. I love him. Can you imagine that? I, I want you to picture this, that heaven opens over you. And the Father God thunders out so that everyone can hear, but he makes sure you hear it. I love you. I don't care who else doesn't. Or who else takes, gives you their love and then pulls it back. Or who else isn't saying it right now loud enough for you to hear. Or whose head you aren't able to turn. You need to know you are of utmost importance to the one of utmost importance. I am the Father in heaven. Yes, I'm creator. Yes, I'm sovereign ruler. Yes, I am benevolent dictator, but I am your Father, and I love you. That is ours in Christ. And that voice, you know what, sometimes a picture, it needed to thunder because all of the whispers, you know, most of us live life and the words we have heard spoken against us are negative ones. They're not words of affirmation. We hear some on our wedding day, maybe, if we get married, and then we all hear them when we're dead at our funeral. And we're the only one that can't, can't hear them. That's how it works. That's the only time you hear anything good about you. And we need to live in that reality of the voice of heaven thundering over us saying, I love you. I made you. I know everything about you. I'm so proud of you. I am singing over you. I look at you at night like you look at your kids, even though they've done all kinds of crazy things during the day when they sleep and you think, oh, I love you. You're so precious to me. This is how the Father views us. Friends, this is good news, right? When we were, um, some of you know that we have partnered with a, a, an orphanage in West Africa, and you've had a chance, many of you actually, to you've hear pictures and you've heard stories, and, uh, and, and some of you have gone. Remember one of the boys that was there when, when we were there in, in 2013? And he was about 12 or 13, HIV positive. The meds that he needed were, were life-giving to him. Like he didn't, he didn't get them every day. Within a couple of weeks, he would be dead. And so at the center, he gets those meds every day. Some of the money that you've given goes, goes to that. And, and he's got this, this little family there now with all these kids. And Lazar and his wife Faith are, are kind of the, you know, the, the patron and the matron of, of that place. And when Lazar drives into the driveway and they hear his car beyond the gate, they start chanting, Papa Aveni, Papa Aveni, Daddy's home, right? 
and they, they just they like swarm his car, climb over top of him, and he, he's got one underneath, one here, and Fate's playing songs, and now Ben and Rachel, another couple are there, and that, they're, they're, they're parents, and they swarm, and, they, and they're, they're like, um, Lizette always says, it's so good how, how fat our kids are, right? Because they're eating. Some of them come to them, right? Left in the bushes, near death, completely, almost starved to death. And so they get food. They get three meals a day plus snacks. They get all the meds they need. They get love. They get a family together. And yet she notices, and in particular with one of these boys, that every so often he'll run away and he'll live in the streets for a week. You think you'd want to look at that child in the face and say, why are you choosing to live like the orphan you were when everything you need for life is here? It describes to us this fight that you and I have to live in the reality of who we really are. When this mentality in us is that I have to fight for love, I have to find my own way, and if I can't get this, and if my marriage isn't working right, or if I can't get married, or if I, you know, I can't have children, or my children don't love me, or I'm having problems, or that there's this desperation in us, there's a fight in a sense to be accepted. And, and it's like God wants to take our face and say, don't you know the love that you have that gives you life? Everything else is a bonus, but this is enough. You know who does that work in our lives for us, that battle? It's not just up to you. It's not mental gymnastics or practices or just things that you need to say to yourself over and over again. The Holy Spirit is given to you and I as the inner witness. That's why it says, by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit teaches us who God is. The Spirit convinces us not to live like orphans, but to receive all of the love that God has given us. The Spirit tells us you don't need to live like a slave. It's not about how good you've been this week. You never need to hide your face from God. He's never hiding his face from you. It's the Spirit that gives you that witness. It's the Spirit that, that's not the Bible, but you know what I'm saying. It's the Spirit that speaks through the written word and says, here's what the living word Jesus has done for you, and it makes it alive in you. That's how we remain in this love. But the Spirit does something else so incredible. It says, in Christ, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male or female. The Jews had a saying, it was like a prayer, Jewish males. Thank you, God, that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm um, free and not a slave, and thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. And the Greeks had a saying. It wasn't a prayer, but it was a saying. You know, it's better to be a man than a woman. We're glad I'm not a woman. Glad I'm not a slave. Glad I'm not a barbarian or someone who's not Greek. <laughs> and Paul is writing to both these audiences say, don't you understand? Those were all the barriers, right? Your gender, your social class, your ethnic standing. And he says, Jesus in Christ has wiped, has wiped out all of those barriers and made one family. See, you and I are not only children. We are a part of a family. All this room, we, are, we have brothers and sisters. We live in a household of faith where God is our father. Because you think, well, I, don't, I can't see God. You know, and I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't live in that time when Jesus was on the earth. So how do I know God loves me? The primary way you will experience the love of God is through the family of God, right? You can't know God without Jesus but you can't experience the love of God in Christ without the church. That's why you need the body. Because in this family of brothers and sisters, we share and give and experience the love of God. 
we experience the forgiveness that God has for us when we screw up and hurt each other, when we make mistakes, when our fallenness, when our junk kind of spills out and each other says, okay, we love you. You're never getting kicked out of this family. We love you. That's how we experience the love of God. When we share our resources and we give to one another, when we care for one another, when we speak words of life and love and encouragement to one another, when we use our gifts to bless one another, we are experiencing the love of God in the household of God. That's why the church, the family of God, is essential for you to experience and know the love of God. The church is this new kind of community. This community that isn't defined like every other community is defined. And some of you, even in your family of origin, you felt like, man, I was always the black sheep. You know, where I always felt like I never quite measured up, or they always looked at me, or they, I was always the butt of the jokes. Or maybe I never received, actually, that patient, caring, doting love from my father or my mother. And even when you say, oh, God is a father, that brings up bad images for me because of my relationship with my dad. You have a family, a new place to learn, a new community. Whether you feel like you're getting the love you need or deserve from your spouse or from your child or from your employer or from your family of origin, the church becomes this new imperfect yes, but this community that's striving together saying, this is what we have in common. This is our shared identity. We are children of God. You might say, okay, that's amazing, but how do I share that with other people? Like, I, I'm not going to put this, you know, tattoo this verse on my arm and let me explain to you, what does it mean, the spiritual elemental forces of the world? How do I share this with someone who needs to know the love of God? Well, they probably have to feel it before they hear it. So how would you do that? Well, you would do what you would do for anyone, that you're going to introduce them to your family. You'd invite them to meet them. Right? Some of you have people who you just need to invite them to church and say, look, I know I pestered you about this, but you really need to come because what you will hear will change your life. Or some say, no, they'll never darken the doors of a church. Fine, go out for a beer with them. Just grab somebody else in this family and say, let's go together. Play sports together. Do things together, but bring your family into their lives so they can somehow experience the miracle of the love of God. Right? People need to feel it before they hear it. And so here's what I want to leave with you for, for your homework, okay? I want you to write a letter or an email. It can be short, a couple of paragraphs, whatever. To someone else in this church, in your family, telling them what you appreciate about them and how much you love them. And use those words. I love you. Now, if you just met last week, don't, don't do that. Um, <laughs> And maybe just be safe, guys, write to guys, girls, write to girls, just to make sure there's no confusion. What does that mean? I love you. But that we would actually learn and continue to grow to be a kind of family that gives life-giving words to each other. That no matter what else you might hear outside this place, that in this family you'd know you are loved. And not in a generic way, but here's what I notice about you. Here's what I appreciate about you. Here's what I love about you. Would you do that? Man, who wouldn't want to get one of those letters or emails, right? So if you want to get one, write one. 
And, and there's maybe a couple people you're really close to in the church, they already know it, okay? Pick somebody that maybe you've had a chance to, to work and serve in some way with, or maybe you're just getting to know them in home group and you've just seen things about them you appreciate about them. Maybe they serve in a capacity that you bless. Maybe they look after your kids and you're, you know, your kid always talks about them. Write something that will give life so that we can be the kind of community that actually says, oh yeah, I can feel the love of God in this place. One of the ways this is kind of hitting uh, home for us right now in a really cool way is, um, as you know, as part of the REACH campaign that we did, that we committed that of the $1.2 million that we wanted to raise for our um, new building was to set aside 10% to, um, to give. Like, uh, so we sent $80,000 to Guinea to support them for the next two years, and that covers about half of their costs each year. Uh, and then also to keep money aside to sponsor a Syrian refugee family. And we are sort of well on our way down that road. And so I wanted to invite uh, Tony and um, Susanna, oh, who's leading that for us, and then I think the rest of the team too. And so if you're a part of that core committee that's um, helping to sort of lead the sponsorship initiative, I just want to invite you to come up. We're going to have a chance to hear about what does it mean to actually, actually bring a family home, to actually create a new space and build relationships and to show the love of God to people who are desperate for it? I just want to give you a blessing today that in a very tangible way, and this is my prayer for you, and God, I know you hear me speaking this over your children, that God would give you a real tangible experience of his love in the next day or week or in the next couple weeks, something that would snap your head up and say, whoa, how he loves me so. Did you receive that? Amen. Thanks and go in the name of Jesus.